Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, which can be found on page 811 of the Pew Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray as we look together at this text. Gracious Father, as we open your word this morning, again, our desire is to hear from you. And for that to happen, we need your presence. We need your spirit here with us, in us, among us, to make yourself known. And so, Lord, by your grace and mercy, um, we ask you to be with us, and we ask your Spirit to take this word and apply it to our hearts, Lord, to bring it to bear on our lives, to reveal to us um, the lies that we believe about you or about ourselves, to replace that with the truth and beauty and goodness of your Son. So be with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. For the next three weeks, uh, we are stepping out of our regular fall series uh, from the Gospels on seeing how Jesus loved us to spend just a few weeks looking at what the Scriptures have to say about giving, about supporting the Lord's work financially, what's often called stewardship. Now, Before launching into a series like this, there are several caveats that are necessary. Uh, If you are visiting Westgate for the first time this morning, or relatively new here, I want you to know that we do not talk about money every single Sunday. This is not the norm. Uh, In fact, in the seven plus years that I've been here, I have never preached a series on giving. Uh, It's come up in a couple sermons here or there when it when the text we're in deals with it, nor are we doing some sort of special fundraiser for the next three weeks. This is, you know, showing up this morning is not like tuning into the classical radio station only to find out they're in the middle of their two-week, you know, donor drive and where they talk about money instead of play music. That's not what's happening the next three weeks. Nor are we doing this series because we're in some sort of financial crisis as a church. I'm not preaching about money because we're desperate for it. 
Uh, in fact, I have timed this series to land at a season where giving is typically very strong, just to remove any suspicion that this is just about paying the bills. So that's not why we're doing this. Uh, nor am I preaching on giving because I think that some of you aren't doing a good enough job at it. Uh, the reality is, as, as lead pastor, I don't know what anybody gives in this church. I don't know what anybody gives, and I don't want to. It's better for me, for our relationship, and easier for me to lead without having that kind of information. And it frees me to preach boldly and clearly what Scripture says about giving without anybody squirming as though I'm just picking on them personally or something like that. So you just need to know all of those things as we get started. So why then are we talking about giving? Uh, for one very simple reason. Because giving is an essential part of Christian discipleship. Giving to the Lord's work financially is an essential part of following Jesus. Now, as part of the culture that we live in, most of us already have a category for giving money to charities or to causes. Uh, it's very popular today. Companies will uh, advertise how much they donate to charities as part of their marketing strategy. I mean, you walk into Target, and there's a big poster on the wall saying, we give $4 million a day to, to whatever. Um, you've got billionaire philanthropists who... Uh, have pledged, like Warren Buffett, who, who pledged eventually to give 99% of his wealth away and who donated $2.8 just last year. Um, and, and even for those of us who are not billionaire Warren Buffett, you know, we, we're surrounded with opportunities to give. You can't even go through the checkout line at the grocery store without being uh, presented with a chance to support some sort of cause. I feel guilty every time I'm in PetSmart when I hit, no, I do not want to save a dog's life today as I'm trying to just <laughs> check out and get my dog food and go home. And we, we're surrounded by that. And, and then, of course, you know, even Amazon builds in giving into their platform where you can uh, you know, de designate part of your uh, purchase to the charity of your choice, or there's crowdfunding, or Giving Tuesday, or GoFundMe, and all of these sorts of things. So giving is a common part of the world we live in today, and that's a great thing. So what role does giving play when it comes to following Jesus? Is it mandatory or is it optional? Is it central or is it marginal? Is the local church one of many charities or ministries that Christian might, Christians might choose to support, or is there something unique about that? How much should we give? How do we allocate our giving among many good causes? What should motivate our giving? Is this just about maximizing the tax deduction or helping people, or, or is there even something bigger than, than that? How does what we do with our money relate to our spiritual growth and maturity in Christ? These are the kinds of questions I hope to explore together this morning and the next couple of weeks. And I want to start today by looking at the foundation of Christian giving, namely our worship of God, our worship of God. How we spend or invest our money on earth 
is ultimately a matter of worship. As Jesus says in our passage, Matthew 6, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And so the text we're looking at, Matthew 6, is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is, uh, extends from chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew's Gospel, and gives us a picture of what life ought to look like as part of God's kingdom, as part of God's family, living under his rule and reign, a rule and reign that encompasses all of life, including how we spend our money. And we can divide this passage into three sections, these verses into three sections, each of which draw a contrast between two objects. And so in verses 19 to 21, it's a contrast between two treasures, treasure stored on earth versus treasure stored in heaven, which focuses on our actions, how we're actually doling out our money. And then the second contrast in verses 22 to 23 is between two kinds of eyes, a good eye and a bad eye, which is kind of a confusing metaphor, but as we're going to see, it's an idiom for generosity versus stinginess. And so that focus there is on our disposition toward our money. And then finally, in verse 24, we see a contrast between two masters, God and money, which focuses on our devotion. Who are we serving? Who is ruling our hearts? And what I want to do is actually work backwards through this passage this morning, beginning with the two masters and the necessity of loyal devotion in verse 24, because what we worship really is the foundation for everything we do, including how we spend our money. So look with me at verse 24. Everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. Whether you are religious or not, we are creatures of worship. The only question is, what are we actually treating as God? That's the big question. In his excellent uh, little book called Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller helps us understand this dynamic. What does this look like uh, in everyday life? He writes, a counterfeit God, so substitute God, replacement God, is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources, on it without a second thought. It can be family or children or career or making money or achievement or critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty and your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, even success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, I feel that my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. Worship. We are 
creatures of worship. Everyone worships something. But whatever we worship is jealous for our allegiance, for our loyalty. We might try to divide our loyalties between competing gods, but only one thing can actually be on the top. Only one thing can function as God in our lives. That's Jesus' point in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And of course, only God's worthy of that worship, right? Only God's worthy of worship. He's the one who made us. He's the one who made us to be his children and servants of his kingdom. Christ is the one who redeems us and restores us to God and renews our devotion and our service. But there is a war in this world and in our hearts to give that worship to something else. It's a war we fight daily to invest that something else, whatever it is, with our love and our trust and our obedience. Because that's what you do with whatever you treat as God. We love it, we trust it, and we obey it. We become its servant. Which, if that worship is invested in God, is the most liberating, satisfying, and eternally secure thing in the world. But if that worship is given to something else, it's simply slavery and disappointment. Slavery and disappointment. And that's true for any false god, but it is especially true if our false god is money. Again, Keller explains what that looks like. We love money when we find ourselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make money new possessions to buy, and looking with jealousy on those who have more than we do. We trust money when we feel we have control of our lives and are safe and secure because of our wealth. But money can't deliver. Money can't deliver. It's a horrible master. It's a great servant, a horrible master. Sinclair Ferguson describes The more we gather possessions in order to feel secure, the more we feel we need them in order to be secure, then the more we need to guard them in order to maintain our security. Therefore, the less secure we are. It doesn't deliver. It can't. And so when we allow our possessions or our money to replace God, functionally speaking, we might still agree with the statement of faith and everything, but, but it's ruling our hearts to, to become more precious to us, more secure, more satisfying. What happens is that we wind up enslaved to it. We become its servant, enslaved to the worry and anxiety that Jesus actually warns us against in the next couple of verses. Verse 25 Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat and what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? Verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious 
about tomorrow. So, so if I'm going to enslave myself to money, what's my life going to look like, according to Jesus? Endless anxiety. That's what it's going to look like. That's what it's going to feel like. Why? Because money's a horrible master. And so why not be anxious? How, how, how can you not be anxious? By serving God instead. Because he's a lot better master than money. As Psalm 24 verse 1 reminds us, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. God owns everything. And he rules everything. And the God who owns everything and rules everything, get this, he cares deeply for you. He cares deeply and personally and intimately for you. He loves us. And so, as Jesus says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Like, if, if he's going to treat something of less value with such kindness and care, will he neglect what has more value? Or verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And so, this, this idea that God is the owner of everything, God is the ruler of everything, that begins to get at the heart of what we are talking about when we talk about Christian stewardship, this idea. Uh, and we use the word stewardship, and that, and that refers not just to money, by the way. That refers to what we do with all of the resources that God has given us, our time, our talent, our energy, uh, um, our, our, our income, and so on. We're specifically looking at giving in this series, but stewardship's a much bigger concept. And we use the phrase stewardship to capture the fact that, that there's nothing that we have that doesn't already belong to God, and there's nothing we can give God that doesn't first come from his hand. He's the owner of everything. We are merely stewards. We're managers. The house or apartment you live in, then, is God's house or apartment. The trees in your yard are God's trees. The grass that you mow is God's grass. The car you drive is God's car. The clothes that you're wearing and those hanging in your closet belong to God. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. God owns everything, and we are his managers, stewards, entrusted with his resources for a time for his purposes. King David captures this really powerfully in his prayer in 1 Chronicles 29 as he reflects on all of these offerings that have been brought together for the building of, of the temple that Solomon's going to build. David says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. 
and you rule over all. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. All this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. There is nothing, David, in Israel for the abundant, lavish offerings that they put together to build this beautiful temple for God. There's nothing they gave God that wasn't already his to begin with and didn't come from his hand anyway. It's this concept of we are stewards, we are managers, and we can only serve one master. We can only serve one master. You can't serve both God and money. And if we're serving God, if he's the object of our devotion and our loyalty and our allegiance and our trust, then not only will we find a lasting freedom and satisfaction and, a, and security unrivaled by anything in this earth, that also ought to show itself in our disposition toward our money and how we think about it, what we do with it. And that's what the second contrast highlights in verses 22 and 23. Two eyes, the necessity of a generous disposition. So this past Thursday um, evening, afternoon, I went to the freshman uh, football game between Natick and Framingham to see some of our students play. And while I was there, I saw one of the boys from our neighborhood and he was scouring the stands looking for loose change and money that people might have dropped. Apparently, shortly after he got to the game, he found a $10 bill on the floor. And from that point on, it was like this quest for the game to, to find what he... And, and every now and then, he would check in with me to report what he'd found so far. You know, I got four pennies or found a dollar or found a quarter. And so at one point, I asked him, so... When you found that dollar, did you ask if anyone around you at the time had maybe dropped it? To which he replied, no, <laughs> as if I'm crazy to even think of such a thing. Our natural disposition toward money is to hold it tightly. It's to hold it tightly, especially if we're putting our hope in it. But if we're serving God and not money, our disposition ought to look different. Instead of a tight fist, it ought to be an open hand. It doesn't belong to us anyway. And that's what this strange metaphor is about here, the good eye versus the evil eye. This is a notoriously obscure metaphor, and people have long argued over what it means to have a good eye or a healthy eye. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. But it's almost certainly an idiom, a figure of speech that Scripture uses where a good or a healthy eye refers to generosity and a bad or an evil eye refers to selfishness and greed. And so just a few examples of that. In Proverbs 11.25, it says, A generous man will prosper. And the word translated generous there in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the same word used for healthy or good in our passage. 
Um, the same word's also used in James 1.5 to describe God who gives generously to all. Similarly, Proverbs 28.22 says, A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth. Or Proverbs 23.6 says, Do not eat the food of a man who is stingy. Or more literally, a man with an evil eye. So it's a metaphor for stinginess. And then Jesus uses that same metaphor again in Matthew 20. Verse 15 says, am I not allowed to do, and this is in the parable of the, uh, uh, the servant uh, paying at the 11th hour and so on, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? More literally, is your eye evil because I'm good? And so it's a metaphor, it's an idiom. In today's speech, we would say, you know, the evil eye would be the tight fist, and the, bad, and the good eye, the healthy eye, would be the open hand. That's the metaphor we would probably use today. And so coming back to that metaphor, though, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if you think of your, your body like a house, the eye is the window, right? It's what lets light in, and it's what reveals what's inside. So a good eye, a generous disposition toward money, reveals light. It shines the light of Christ. A bad eye, a selfish disposition toward money, reveals darkness, ungodliness. It's impossible to be the kind of light that Jesus calls us to be in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine. That is impossible to do without a generous disposition toward what you own. Without generosity... When we're stingy or selfish, we misrepresent God. That's the picture there. And the ultimate test, the ultimate evidence of whether we have a good eye or a bad one, of whether we have a, a tight fist or an open hand, is what we actually spend our money on. That's the ultimate test of whether we're serving God or money. And that brings us to the first contrast in our passage and our third point, the two treasures and the necessity of investing in heaven. This is where the proverbial rubber meets the road. What we actually do with the money we have. How we, when we dole out our money, what are we spending it on? On treasure that lasts or treasure that's going to rot? Jesus says to us, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So what is he saying here? What is he saying? What does it mean to store up treasures in heaven versus on earth? What's being prohibited and what's being commended? Well, I think John Stott offers a really helpful summary. Uh, first, there is no ban on, possession, on possessions in themselves. Scripture nowhere forbids private property. Second, saving for a rainy day is not forbidden to Christians. In fact, that's commended in Proverbs. Thirdly, we are not to despise but rather enjoy the good things which our Creator has given us richly to enjoy. 
So it, it's not like possessions are evil or, or that we should feel guilty for having things from God's hand. So neither having possessions nor making provision for the future nor enjoying the gifts of a good creator are included on this ban on earthly treasure. So what then? What's prohibited? What Jesus forbids his followers is the selfish accumulation of goods. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Extravagant and luxurious living the hard-heartedness which does not feel the colossal need of the world's underprivileged people, the foolish fantasy that a person's life consists in the abundance of his possessions, and the materials which tether our hearts to earth. That's laying up treasure on earth, treating money as God. So what then does laying up treasure in heaven mean? Well, Stock continues, surely it is to do anything on earth whose effects last for eternity. So it's, it's an eternal scope. For instance, nurturing your relationship with Christ. That's an eternal relationship. That's a, that's, that's a, a good thing. Bearing witness to Christ and his kingdom through the word and deed that others might enjoy that eternal relationship with God. See the impact of his eternal kingdom. And yes, Stott continues, the use of our money for Christian causes, which is the only investment whose dividends are everlasting. Everything we invest money in on this earth will eventually fall apart. Like it might be the greatest, you know, you buy stock early on in a company and you, you know, at some point that company's going to die or be bought out or fall apart. There's no eternal dividend on that. Giving to the Lord's work whether it's the advancement of his gospel, the care of the less fortunate, whatever shape that takes, that is a, an investment that pays dividends to eternity. They are temporal activities with eternal consequences. That's treasure in heaven. And this matters to Jesus, matters so deeply not just because he wants us to make a good investment, though of course he does, but because, as he says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you want to know which God you're serving, you want to know what you're truly treasuring above all things, here's a simple test. Follow the money. Follow the money. As Randy Alcorn writes, by telling us that our hearts follow our treasure, Jesus is saying, show me your checkbook, your visa statement, and your receipts, and I'll show you where your heart is. What we do with our money exposes the true master of our lives. And that is why giving is such an essential part of Christian discipleship. Because our relationship with Christ, our spiritual maturity and health, the degree to which we're trusting God versus trusting in our possessions, that will be reflected in the use of our money. In the generosity of our disposition, in the degree to which we invest in God's kingdom financially, how we spend or invest our money on earth is ultimately a matter 
of worship, of worship, of seeing who is worthy to receive it. Again, Alcorn writes, there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. We may try to divorce faith and finances, but God sees them as inseparable. Similarly, uh, Don Whitney writes, the use of your money and how you give it is one of the best ways of evaluating your relationship with Christ and your spiritual trustworthiness. If you love Christ with all your heart, your giving will reflect that. If you love Christ and the work of his kingdom more than anything else, your giving will show that. And I think for, for many of us, myself included, when we look at what we spend our money on, I think many of us will be surprised to discover that our hearts do not treasure God as much as we thought they did. Um, many of us, if, if we're honest, have allowed our affections or our loyalties to be co-opted or captured by these competing gods. Or we've allowed ourselves to be overcome with the anxiety about what we'll eat or what we'll wear, forgetting that God owns everything and that he cares deeply for us. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that he is far more capable of providing for us than we are providing for ourselves. And so the solution, of course... A solution, of course, when we realize that disconnect is repentance, right? Or as Jesus puts it so powerfully and beautifully in, in chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things that you're worrying about, what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink, what are we going to wear, all of those things will be added to you. Seek first God's kingdom. God's righteousness. But as we're going to see, particularly next week, that repentance and faith must be fueled by the gospel of Jesus, by the generosity of God in giving us his only son, Jesus Christ. As one author has said, idols cannot be removed only replaced. Idols cannot be removed, only replaced. We will always be worshiping something. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, if we're not worshiping Christ above all things, including in our giving, it's because we're not seeing him clearly for who he is. It's because we're not allowing ourselves to, to um, apprehend his incomparable worthiness and beauty. We have a small view of God and his gospel. Because when we see God for who he really is, and we recognize that worthiness and that beauty, we recognize his authority, his ownership over everything, his authority over what we have, and his care and his mercy and his love for us, his people. When we realize how he is demonstrated that preeminently in the cross and how he gave his son for us, that which was most precious to him, we can't help but be open-handed in our disposition toward our money and, and invest wisely in what will last. Now, of course, that still leaves us with all sorts of questions. 
So how much do I give? How do we allocate among many good causes? What should motivate our giving? And we're going to try and let Scripture answer those over the next couple of weeks. But this morning, I just have two simple applications for all of us. First is to take a fresh look at Christ this week. Take a fresh look at Christ. Set aside some time this week, just you and the Lord, to read and reflect on the truth and beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. Maybe spend some time in the Gospels. Maybe read through the book of Colossians in one sitting. Take you about 15 minutes to see who Jesus is, to see what he's done. Meditate on, reflect on, write it down, pray about it. Take a fresh look at Christ. And then second, take a fresh look at how you spend your money. Look at your budget. Look at your bank account. Look at your statements. Where does it go? How much is necessity? How much is luxury? How much is set aside for the Lord? And ask God to help you be brutally honest about that because we're really good at justifying anything we'll spend money on. And and take that fresh look at your money and that fresh look at Jesus... And then compare them. Ask yourself, how do these line up? How do these line up? Do I see a healthy relationship here? Is there something God wants me to see? Is there something he's trying to tell me? What does this say about my heart and where my treasure is? So take time to do those two things this week. A fresh look at Jesus, a fresh look at your finances, Because what we do with our money exposes the true master of our lives. How we spend our money on earth is ultimately a matter of worship. And so may we, as a people and as a church, worship God by investing generously in his kingdom and trusting him to provide. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that there are few subjects more uncomfortable than money. Lord, there are those among us here that simply uh, feel that we do not have enough that it's a constant struggle. There are those among us who who feel like we're giving a lot, very generously. There are those who are wrestling with whether their lifestyle reflects the value of your kingdom. Lord, there are countless emotions and reactions as we think about this subject. May we focus not on a spirit of guilt, but a spirit that's attuned to your glory. 
to your worthiness. Lord, may you be the object of our focus. May you be the standard that we use to evaluate our lives. And may, be, may we be willing to ask hard questions, hard questions about our lives. Not, God, because we've got some initiative as a church and we've got to figure out how to pay for it, but because you are the only worthy master. And that is true regardless of what's happening in this church. So, Lord, may our hearts be drawn to you. May our treasure be in heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.